Chapter 5, Section 2 of Manual of Egyptian Archaeology and Guide to the Study of Antiquities in Egypt by Gaston Maspero. Translated by Amelia B. Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 5, The Industrial Arts. Section 2, Wood, Ivory, Leather and Textile Fabrics. Objects in ivory, bone and horn are among the rarities of our museums, but we must not, for this reason, conclude that the Egyptians did not make ample use of those substances. Horn is perishable and is eagerly devoured by certain insects, which rapidly destroy it. Bone and ivory soon deteriorate and become friable. The elephant was known to the Egyptians from the remotest period. They may, perhaps, have found it inhabiting the Thebald, when first they established themselves in that part of the Nile Valley. For as early as the 5th dynasty, we find the pictured form of the elephant in use as the hieroglyphic name of the island of Elephantine. Ivory in tusks and half-tusks was imported into Egypt from the regions of the Upper Nile. It was sometimes dyed green or red, but was generally left of its natural colour. It was largely employed by cabinet-makers for inlaying furniture, as chairs, bedsteads, and coffers. Combs, dice, hairpins, toilette ornaments, delicately wrought spoons, coal bottles hollowed out of a miniature column surmounted by a capital, incense burners in the shape of a hand supporting a bronze cup in which the perfumes were burned, and boomerangs engraved with the figures of the gods and fantastic animals were also made of ivory. Some of these objects are works of fine art, as, for instance, at Giza, a poignard handle in the form of a lion, the plaques in bas-relief which adorn the draft-box of one Tuai, who lived towards the end of the 17th dynasty, a 5th dynasty figure unfortunately mutilated, which yet retains traces of rose colour, and a miniature statue of Abi, who died at the time of the 13th dynasty. This little personage, perched on the top of a lotus-flower column, looks straight before him with a majestic air, which contrasts somewhat comically with the size and prominence of his ears. The modelling of the figure is broad and spirited, and will bear comparison with good Italian ivories of the Renaissance period. Egypt produces few trees, and of these few the greater number are useless to the sculptor. The two which most abound, namely the date palm and the dom palm, are too coarse of fibre for carving, and are too unequal in texture. Some varieties of the sycamore and acacia are the only trees of which the grain is sufficiently fine and manageable to be wrought with the chisel. Wood was nevertheless a favourite material for cheap and rapid work. It was even employed at times for subjects of importance, such as car statues, and the wooden man of Giza shows with what boldness and amplitude of style it could be treated. But the blocks and beams which the Egyptians had at command were seldom large enough for a statue. The wooden man himself, though but half-size, consists of a number of pieces held together by square pegs. Hence, woodcarvers were wont to treat their subjects upon such a scale as admitted of their being cut in one block, and the statues of olden time became statuettes under the Theban dynasties. Art lost nothing by the reduction, and more than one of these little figures is comparable to the finest works of the ancient empire. The best, perhaps, is at the Turin Museum, and dates from the 20th dynasty. It represents a young girl whose only garment is a slender girdle. She is of that indefinite age 
when the undeveloped form is almost as much like that of a boy as of a girl. The expression of the head is gentle yet saucy. It is, in fact, across thirty centuries of time, a portrait of one of those graceful little maidens of elephantine who, without immodesty or embarrassment, walk unclothed in sight of strangers. Three little wooden men in the Giza Museum are probably contemporaries of the Turin figure. They wear full dress, as indeed they should, for one was a king's favourite, named Hori, and surnamed Ra. They are walking with calm and measured tread, the bust thrown forward and the head high. The expression upon their faces is knowing and somewhat sly. An officer who has retired on half-pay at the Louvre wears an undress uniform of the time of Amenhotep III, that is to say, a small wig, a close-fitting vest, with short sleeves, and a kilt drawn tightly over the hips, reaching scarcely halfway down the thigh, and trimmed in front with a piece of puffing plaited longwise. His companion is a priest, who wears his hair in rows of little curls, one above the other, and is clad in a long petticoat, falling below the calf of the leg, and spreading out in front in a kind of plaited apron. He holds a sacred standard consisting of a stout staff, surmounted by a ram's head, crowned with the solar disc. Both officer and priest are painted red-brown, with the exception of the hair, which is black, the cornea of the eyes, which is white, and the standard, which is yellow. Curiously enough, the little lady Nye, who inhabits the same glass case, is also painted reddish-brown, instead of buff, which was the canonical colour for women. She is taken in a close-fitting garment trimmed down the front with a band of white embroidery. Round her neck she wears a necklace consisting of a triple row of gold pendants. Two golden bracelets adorn her wrists, and on her head she carries a wig with long curls. The right arm hangs by her side, the hand holding some object now lost, which was probably a mirror. The left arm is raised, and with the left hand she presses a lotus lily to her breast. The body is easy and well formed. The figure indicates youth, the face is open, smiling, pleasant and somewhat plebeian. To modify the unwieldy mass of the headdress was beyond the skill of the artist, but the bust is delicately and elegantly modelled. The clinging garment gives discreet emphasis to the shape, and the action of the hand which holds the flower is rendered with grace and naturalness. All these are portraits, and as the sitters were not persons of august rank, we may conclude that they did not employ the most fashionable artists. They doubtless had recourse to more unpretending craftsmen, but that such craftsmen were thus highly trained in knowledge of form and accuracy of execution shows how strongly even the artisan was influenced by the great school of sculpture which then flourished at Thebes. This influence becomes even more apparent when we study the knick-knacks of the toilet table, and such small objects as, properly speaking, come under the head of furniture. To pass in review the hundred and one little articles of female ornament or luxury to which the fancy of the designer gave all kinds of ingenious and novel forms would be no light task. The handles of mirrors, for instance, generally represented a stem of lotus or papyrus surmounted by a full-blown flower, from the midst of which rose a disc of polished metal. For this design is sometimes substituted the figure of a young girl, either nude or clad in a close-fitting garment, who holds the mirror on her head. The tops of hairpins were carved in the semblance of a coiled serpent, or of the head of a jackal, a dog, or a hawk. The pincushion in which they are placed is a hedgehog or a tortoise, with holes pierced in a formal pattern upon the back. The headrests, which served for pillows, were decorated with bas-reliefs of subjects derived from the myths of Bez and Sekhet, the grimacing features of the former deity being carved on the ends or on the base. 
but it is in the carving of perfume spoons and coal bottles that the inventive skill of the craftsman is most brilliantly displayed not to soil their fingers the egyptians made use of spoons for essences pomades and the variously coloured preparations with which both men and women stained their cheeks lips eyelids nails and palms the designer generally borrowed his subjects from the fauna or flora of the nile valley a little case at giza is carved in the shape of a couch and calf the body being hollowed out and the head and back forming a removable lid a spoon in the same collection represents a dog running away with an enormous fish in his mouth the body of the fish forming the bowl of the spoon another shows a cartouche springing from a full-blown lotus another a lotus fruit laid upon a bouquet of flowers and here is a simple triangular bowl the handle decorated with a stem and two buds the most elaborate specimens combine these subjects with the human figure a young girl clad in a mere girdle is represented in the act of swimming her head is well lifted above the water and her outstretched arms support a duck the body of which is hollowed out while the wings being movable serve as a cover we have also a young girl in the louvre collection but she stands in a maze of lotus plants and is in the act of gathering a bud a bunch of stems from which emerge two full-blown blossoms unites the handle to the bowl of the spoon which is in reverse position the larger end being turned outwards and the point inwards elsewhere a young girl playing upon a long-necked lute as she trips along is framed in by two flowering stems sometimes the fair musician is standing upright in a tiny skiff and sometimes a girl bearing offerings is substituted for the lute player another example represents a slave toiling under the weight of an enormous sack the age and physiognomy of each of these personages is clearly indicated the lotus gatherer is of good birth as may be seen by her carefully plaited hair and tunic the theban ladies wore long robes but this damsel has gathered up her skirts that she may thread her way among the reeds without wetting her garments the two musicians and the swimming girl belong on the contrary to an inferior or servile class two of them wear only a girdle and the third has a short garment negligently fastened the bearer of offerings wears the long pendant tresses distinctive of childhood and is one of those slender growing girls of the fellahin class whom one sees in such numbers on the banks of the nile her lack of clothing is however no evidence of want of birth for not even the children of nobility were wont to put on the garments of their sex before the period of adolescence lastly the slave with his thick lips his high shoulders his flat nose his heavy animal jaw his low brow and his bare conical head is evidently a caricature of some foreign prisoner the dogged sullenness with which he trudges under his burden is admirably caught while the angularities of the body the type of the head and the general arrangement of the parts remind one of the terracotta grotesques of asia minor in these subjects all the minor details the fruits the flowers the various kinds of birds are rendered with much more truth and cleverness of the three ducks which are tied by the feet and slung over the arms of the girl bearing offerings two are resigned to their fate and hang swinging with open eyes and outstretched necks but the third flaps her wings and lifts her head protestingly the two small waterfowl perched upon the lotus flowers listen placidly to the lute player's music their beaks resting on their crops they have learned by experience not to put themselves out of the way for a song and they know that there is nothing to fear from a young girl unless she is armed they are put to flight in the bas-relief by the mere sight of a bow and arrows just as a company of rooks is put to flight nowadays by the sight of a gun the egyptians were especially familiar with the ways of animals and birds and 
reproduced them with marvellous exactness. The habit of minutely observing minor facts became instinctive, and it informed their most trifling works with that air of reality which strikes us so forcibly at the present day. Household furniture was no more abundant in ancient Egypt than it is in the Egypt of today. In the time of the Twelfth Dynasty, an ordinary house contained no bedsteads, but low frameworks like the Nubian Angareb, or mats rolled up by day on which the owners lay down at night in their clothes, pillowing their heads on earthenware, stone, or wooden headrests. There were also two or three simple stone seats, some wooden chairs or stools with carved legs, chests and boxes of various sizes for clothes and tools, and a few common vessels of pottery or bronze. For making fire there were fire sticks, and the bow drill for using them. Children's toys were even then found in great variety, though of somewhat quaint construction. There were dolls with wigs and movable limbs, made in stone, pottery and wood, figures of men and animals and terracotta boats, balls of wood and stuffed leather, whip-tops and tip-cats. The art of the cabinet-maker was nevertheless carried to a high degree of perfection from the time of the ancient dynasties. Planks were dressed down with the adze, mortised, glued, joined together by means of pegs cut in hard wood, or acacia thorns, never metal nails, polished and finely covered with paintings. Chests generally stand upon four straight legs, and are occasionally thus raised to some height from the ground. The lid is flat or rounded according to a special curvature, much in favour amongst the Egyptians of all periods. Sometimes, though rarely, it is gable-shaped like our house roofs. Generally speaking, the lid lifts off bodily, but it often turns upon a peg inserted in one of the uprights. Sometimes also it turns upon wooden pivots. The panels, which are large and admirably suited for the decorative art, are enriched with paintings or inlaid with ivory, silver, precious woods or enamelled plaques. It may be that we are scarcely in a position to justly appraise the skill of Egyptian cabinet makers or the variety of designs produced at various periods. Nearly all the furniture which has come down to our day has been found in tombs, and being destined for burial in the sepulchre, may either be of a character exclusively destined for the use of the mummy, or possibly a cheap imitation of a more precious class of goods. The mummy was, in fact, the cabinet-maker's best customer. In other lands, man took but a few objects with him into the next world, but the defunct Egyptian required nothing short of a complete outfit. The mummy-case alone was an actual monument, in the construction of which a whole squad of workmen was employed. The styles of mummy-cases varied from period to period. Under the Memphite and First Theban empires, we find only rectangular chests in sycamore wood, flat at top and bottom, and made of many pieces joined together by wooden pins. The pattern is not elegant, but the decoration is very curious. The lid has no cornice. Outside, it is inscribed down the middle with a long column of hieroglyphs. Sometimes merely written in ink, sometimes laid on in colour, sometimes carved in hollowed-out signs, filled in with some kind of bluish paste. The inscription records only the name and titles of the deceased, accompanied now and then by a short form of prayer in his favour. The inside is covered with a thick coat of stucco, or whitewash. Upon this surface, the seventeenth chapter of the Book of the Dead was generally written in red and black inks, and in fine cursive hieroglyphs. The body of the chest is made with three horizontal planks for the bottom, and eight vertical planks placed two and two for the four sides. The outside is sometimes decorated with long strips of various colours, ending in interlaced lotus leaves, such as are seen on stone sarcophagi. More frequently, it is ornamented on the left side with two wide-open eyes, 
and two monumental doors, and on the right side with three doors exactly like those seen in contemporary catacombs. The sarcophagus is in truth the house of the deceased, and being his house, its four walls were bound to contain an epitome of the prayers and tableau which covered the walls of his tomb. The necessary formulae and pictured scenes were, therefore, reproduced inside, nearly in the same order in which they appear in the mastabas. Each side is divided in three registers, each register containing a dedication in the name of the deceased, or representations of objects belonging to him, or such texts from the ritual as need to be repeated for his benefit. Skilfully composed, and painted upon a background made to imitate some precious wood, the whole forms a boldly designed and harmoniously coloured picture. The cabinet-maker's share of the work was the lightest, and the long boxes in which the dead of the earliest period were buried made no great demand upon his skill. This, however, was not the case when, in later times, the sarcophagus came to be fashioned in the likeness of the human body. Of this style we have two leading types. In the most ancient, the mummy serves as the model for his case. His outstretched feet and hands are in one. The form of the knee, the swell of the calf, the contours of the thigh and the trunk are summarily indicated and are, as it were, vaguely modelled under the wood. The head, apparently the only living part of this inert body, is wrought out in the round. The dead man is, in this wise, imprisoned in a kind of statue of himself, and this statue is so well balanced that it can stand on its feet, if required, as upon a pedestal. In the other type of sarcophagus, the deceased lies at full length upon his tomb, and his figure, sculpted in the round, serves as the lid of his mummy case. On his head is seen the ponderous wig of the period. A white linen vest and a long petticoat cover his chest and legs. His feet are shod with elegant sandals. His arms lie straight along his sides, or are folded upon his breast. The hands grasping various emblems, as the ankh, the girdle buckle, the tat, or, as in the case of the wife of Sinatmu, of Giza, a garland of ivy. This mummiform type of sarcophagus is rarely met with under the Memphite dynasties, though that of Menkara, the Mycorhinus of the Greeks, affords a memorable example. Under the 11th dynasty, the mummy case is frequently but a hollow tree trunk, roughly sculptured outside, with a head at one end and feet at the other. The face is daubed with bright colours, yellow, red and green. The wig and headdress are striped with black and blue, and an elaborate collar is depicted on the breast. The rest of the case is either covered with the long, gilded wings of Isis and Nephthys, or with a uniform tint of white or yellow, and sparsely decorated with symbolic figures, or columns of hieroglyphs painted blue and black. Among the sarcophagi belonging to the kings of the 17th dynasty, which are recovered from Deir el-Bahari, the most highly finished belonged to this type, and were only remarkable of the really extraordinary skill with which the craftsmen had reproduced the features of the deceased sovereigns. The mask of Ahmes I, that of Amenhotep I, and that of Thosmes II are masterpieces in their way. The mask of Ramesses II shows no sign of paint, except a black line which accentuates the form of the eye. The face is doubtless modelled in the likeness of the pharaoh Herhor, who restored the funerary outfit of his puissant ancestor, and it will almost bear comparison with the best works of contemporary sculpture. Two mummy cases found in the same place, namely those of Queen Ames Nefertari and her daughter, Ahotep II, are of gigantic size and measure more than ten and a half feet in height. Standing upright, they might almost be taken for two of the carotid statues from the first court of Medinet Habu, though on a smaller scale. The bodies are represented as bandaged, and 
but vaguely indicate the contours of the human form. The shoulders and bust of each are covered with a kind of network in relief, every mesh standing out in blue upon a yellow ground. The hands emerge from this mantle, are crossed upon the breast, and grasp the ankh, or tau cross, symbolic of eternal life. The heads are portraits. The faces are round, the eyes large, the expression mild and characterless. Each is crowned with the flat-topped cap and lofty plumes of amen, or maot. We cannot but wonder for what reason these huge receptacles were made. The two queens were small in stature, and their mummies, which were well-nigh lost in the cases, had to be packed round with an immense quantity of rags to prevent them from shifting and becoming injured. Apart from their abnormal size, these cases are characterised by the same simplicity which distinguishes other mummy cases of royal or private persons of the same period. Towards the middle of the 19th dynasty, the fashion changed. The single mummy case, soberly decorated, was superseded by two, three, and even four cases, fitting the one into the other, and covered with paintings and inscriptions. Sometimes the outer receptacle is a sarcophagus with convex lid and square ears, upon which the deceased is pictured over and over again upon a white ground, in adoration before the gods of the Assyrian cycle. When, however, it is shaped in human form, it retains somewhat of the old simplicity. The face is painted, a collar is represented on the chest, a band of hieroglyphs extends down the whole length of the body to the feet, and the rest is one uniform tone of black, brown, or dark yellow. The inner cases were extravagantly rich, the hands and faces being red, rose-coloured, or gilded, the jewellery painted, or sometimes imitated by means of small morsels of enamel encrusted in the woodwork. The surface is frequently covered with many-coloured scenes and legends, and the whole heightened by means of the yellow varnish already mentioned. The lavish ornamentation of this period is in striking contrast with the sobriety of earlier times, but in order to grasp the reason of this change, one must go to Thebes and visit the actual sepulchres of the dead. The kings and private persons of the great conquering dynasties devoted their energies and all the means at their disposal to the excavation of catacombs. The walls of these catacombs were covered with sculptures and paintings. The sarcophagus was cut in one enormous block of granite or alabaster, and admirably wrought. It was, therefore, of little moment if the wooden coffin in which the mummy reposed was simply decorated. But the Egyptians of the decadence and their rulers had not the wealth of Egypt and the spoils of neighbouring countries at command. They were poor, and the slenderness of their resources debarred them from great undertakings. They, for the most part, gave up the preparation of magnificent tombs, and employed such wealth as remained to them in the fabrication of fine mummy cases carved in sycamore wood. The beauty of their coffins, therefore, but affords an additional proof of their weakness and poverty. When, for a few centuries, the Sati princes had succeeded in re-establishing the prosperity of the country, stone sarcophagi came once more into requisition, and the wooden coffin reverted to somewhat of the simplicity of the great period. But this renaissance was not destined to last. The Macedonian conquest brought back the same revolution in funerary fashions which followed the fall of the Ramessides, and double and triple mummy cases overpainted and overgilded were once again in demand. If the craftsmen of Greco-Roman time, who attired the dead of Ekmim for their last resting places, were less skilful than those of earlier date, their bad taste was, at all events, not surpassed by the Theban coffin-makers who lived and worked under the latest princes of the royal line of Ramesses. A series of Greco-Roman examples from the Fayum exhibit the stages by which portraiture in the flat there replaced the modelled mask, until towards the middle of the second century AD it became customary to bandage over the face of the mummy a panel portrait of the dead, 
as he was in life. The remainder of the funerary outfit supplied the cabinet maker with as much work as the coffin maker. Boxes of various shapes and sizes were required for the wardrobe of the mummy, for his viscera, and for his funerary statuettes. He must also have tables for his meals, stools, chairs, a bed to lie upon, a boat and sledge to convey him to the tomb, and sometimes even a war chariot and a carriage in which to take to the air. The boxes for canopic vases, funerary statuettes and libation vases are divided in several compartments. A couchant jackal is sometimes placed on top, and it serves for a handle by which to take off the lid. Each box was provided with its own little sledge upon which it was drawn in the funeral procession on the day of burial. Beds are not very uncommon. Many are identical in structure with the Nubian angarebs, and consist merely of some coarse fabric or of some interlaced strips of leather stretched on a plain wooden frame. Few exceed 56 inches in length. The sleeper, therefore, could never lie outstretched, but must, perforce, assume a doubled-up position. The frame is generally horizontal, but sometimes it slopes slightly downwards from the head to the foot. It was often raised to a considerable height above the level of the floor, and a stool or a little portable set of steps was used in mounting it. These details were known to us by the wall paintings only until I myself discovered two perfect specimens in 1884 and 1885, one in Thebes in a tomb of the 13th dynasty, and the other at Ekmim in the Greco-Roman necropolis. In the former, two accommodating lions have elongated their bodies to form the framework, their heads doing the duty for the head of the bed, and their tails being curled up under the feet of the sleeper. The bed is surmounted by a kind of canopy, under which the mummy lay in state. Rind has already found a similar canopy, which is now in the Museum of Edinburgh. In shape, it is a temple, the rounded roof being supported by elegant colonnettes of painted wood. A doorway guarded by serpents is supposed to give access to the miniature edifice. Three winged discs, each larger than the one below it, adorn three superimposed cornices above the door, the whole frontage being surmounted with a row of erect uraei crowned with the solar disc. The canopy belonging to the 13th dynasty bed is much more simple, being a mere balustrade in cut and painted wood, in imitation of the water pattern with which temple walls were decorated. The whole is crowned with an ordinary cornice. In the bed of Greco-Roman date, carved and painted figures of the goddess Ma, sitting with her feather on her knee, are substituted for the customary balustrades. Isis and Nephthys stand with their winged arms outstretched at the head and foot. The roof is open, save for a row of vultures hovering above the mummy, which is wept over by two kneeling statuettes of Isis and Nephthys, one at each end. The sledges upon which the mummies were dragged to the sepulchre were also furnished with canopies, but in a totally different style. The sledge canopy is a panelled shrine, like those which I discovered in 1886 in the tomb of Sinetmu at Kernet Marae. If light was admitted, it came through a square opening showing the head of the mummy within. Wilkinson gives an illustration of a sledge canopy of this kind from the wall paintings of a Theban tomb. The panels were always made to slide. As soon as the mummy was laid upon his sledge, the panels were closed, the cornice roof placed over all, and the hole closed in. With regard to chairs, many of those in the Louvre and the British Museum were made about the time of the 11th dynasty. These are not the least beautiful specimens which have come down to us, one in particular having preserved an extraordinary brilliancy of colour. The framework, formerly fitted with a seat of strong netting, was originally supported on four legs with lion's feet. The back is ornamental with two lotus flowers and with a row of lozenges inlaid in ivory and ebony upon a red ground. 
Stools of similar workmanship and folding stools, the feet of which are in the form of a goose's head, may be seen in all museums. Pharaohs and persons of high rank affected more elaborate designs. Their seats were sometimes raised very high, the arms being carved to resemble running lions, and the lower supports being prisoners of war, bound back to back. A footboard in front served as a step to mount by, and as a footstool for the sitter. Up to the present time we found no specimens of this kind of seat. We learn from the tomb paintings that netted or caned bottom chairs were covered with stuffed seats and richly worked cushions. These cushions and stuffed seats have perished, but it is to be concluded that they were covered with tapestry. Tapestry was undoubtedly known to the Egyptians, and a bas-relief subject at Beni Hassan shows the process of weaving. The frame, which is of the simplest structure, resembles that now in use among the weavers of Ekmem. It is horizontal and is formed of two slender cylinders, or rather of two rods, about 54 inches apart, each held in place by two large pegs, driven into the ground about three feet distant from each other. The warps of the chain were strongly fastened, then rolled round the top cylinder till they were stretched sufficiently tight. Mill sticks placed at certain distances facilitated the insertion of the needles which carried the thread. As in the goblin's factory, the work was begun from the bottom. The texture was regulated and equalised by means of a coarse comb, and was rolled upon the lower cylinder as it increased in length. Hangings and carpets were woven in this manner, some with figures, others with geometrical designs, zigzags and checkers. A careful examination of the monuments has, however, convinced me that most of the subjects hitherto supposed to represent examples of tapestry represent, in fact, examples of cut and painted leather. The leather workers' craft flourished in ancient Egypt. Few museums are without a pair of leather sandals or a specimen of mummy braces with ends of stamped leather bearing the effigy of a god, a pharaoh, a hieroglyphic legend, a rosette, or perhaps all combined. These little relics are not older than the time of the priest kings, or the earlier Bubastites. It is to the same period that we must attribute the great cut leather canopy in the Giza Museum. The catafalque upon which the mummy was laid when transported from the mortuary establishment to the tomb was frequently adorned with a covering made of stuff or soft leather. Sometimes the side pieces hung down and sometimes they were drawn aside with bands, like curtains which showed the coffin. The canopy at Deir el-Bari was made for the princess Isiemkeb, daughter of the high priest Mahesirti, wife of the high priest Menkapura, and mother of the high priest Pinotum III. The centrepiece, in shape an oblong square, is divided into three bands of sky-blue leather, now faded to pearl grey. The two side pieces are sprinkled with yellow stars. Upon the middle piece are rows of vultures, whose outspread wings protect the mummy. Four other pieces covered with red and green checkers are attached to the ends and sides. The longer pieces which hung over the sides are united to the centrepiece by an ornamental bordering. On the right, scarabi with extended wings alternate with the cartouches of King Pinotem II and are surmounted by a lance-head frieze. On the left side, the pattern is more complicated. In the centre, we see a bunch of lotus lilies flanked by royal cartouches. Next come two antelopes, each kneeling upon a basket, then two bouquets of papyrus, then two more scarabi, similar to those upon the other border. The lance-head frieze finishes it above, as on the opposite side. The technical process is very curious. The hieroglyphs and figures were cut out from large pieces of leather, 
Then, under the open spaces thus left, were sewn thongs of leather of whatever colour was required for those ornaments of hieroglyphs. Finally, in order to hide the patchwork effect presented at the back, the whole was lined with long strips of white or light yellow leather. Despite the difficulties of treatment which this work presented, the result is most remarkable. The outlines of the gazelles, scarabi and flowers are as clean-cut and as elegant as if drawn with the pen upon a wool surface or a page of papyrus. The choice of subjects is happy, and the colours employed are both lively and harmonious. The craftsman who designed and executed the canopy of Isenkeb had profited by a long experience of this system of decoration, and of the kind of pattern suitable to the material. For my own part, I have not the slightest doubt that the cushions of chairs and royal couches and the sails of funeral and sacred boats used for transport of mummies and divine images were most frequently made in leather work. The checker pattern sail represented in one of the boat subjects painted on the wall of a chamber in the tomb of Rameses III might be mistaken for one of the side pieces of the canopy at Giza. The vultures and fantastic birds depicted upon the sails of another boat are neither more strange nor more difficult to make in cut leather than the vultures and gazelles of Isiemkeb. We have it upon the authority of ancient writers that the Egyptians of olden time embroidered as skilfully as those of the Middle Ages. The surcoats given by Amasis, one to the Lacedaemonians and the other to the temple of Athena at Lindos, were of linen embroidered with figures of animals in gold thread and purple, each thread consisting of 365 distinct filaments. To go back to a still earlier period, the monumental tableaus show portraits of the pharaohs wearing garments with borders, either woven or embroidered, or done in applique work. The most simple patterns consist of one or more stripes of brilliant colour parallel with the edge of the material. Elsewhere we see palm patterns, or rows of discs and points, leaf patterns, meanders, and even, here and there, figures of men, gods, or animals, worked most probably with the needle. None of the textile materials yet found upon royal mummies are thus decorated. We are therefore unable to pronounce upon the quality of this work, or the method employed in its production. Once only upon the body of one of the dear El Bahari princesses did I find a royal cartouche embroidered in pale rose colour. The Egyptians of the best period seem to have attached special value to plain stuffs, and especially to white ones. These they wove with marvellous skill, and upon looms in every respect, identical with those used in tapestry work. Those portions of the winding sheet of Thothmes III, which enfold the royal hands and arms, are as fine as the finest India muslin, and as fairly merit the name of woven air as the gauzes of the island of Koz. This, of course, is a mere question of manufacture, apart from the domain of art. Embroideries and tapestries were not commonly used in Egypt till about the end of the Persian period, or the beginning of the period of Greek rule. Alexandria became partly peopled by Phoenician, Syrian, and Jewish colonists, who brought with them the methods of manufacture particular to their own countries, and founded workshops which soon developed into flourishing establishments. It is to the Alexandrians that Pliny ascribes the invention of weaving with several warps, thus producing the stuff called brocades, polymita. And in the time of the first Caesars, it was a recognised fact that, quote, the needle of Babylon was henceforth surpassed by the comb of the Nile. End quote. The Alexandrian tapestries were not made after exclusively geometrical designs, like the product of the old Egyptian looms, but, according to the testimony of the ancients, were enriched with figures of animals and even of men. 
of the masterpieces which adorned the palaces of the Ptolemies, no specimens remain. Many fragments which may be attributed to the later Roman time have, however, been found in Egypt, such as the piece with the boy and goose, described by Wilkinson, and a piece representing marine divinities, bought by myself at Koptos. The numerous embroidered winding sheets with woven borders, which have recently been discovered near Ekmim and in the Fayum, are nearly all from Coptic tombs, and are more nearly akin to Byzantine art than to the art of Egypt. End of chapter 5, section 2. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.